You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. We are going through the Bible in a year, doing an overview sermon of every book of the Bible, all 66 books in 52 weeks. We're going to be in First and Second Kings today. I uh, would love for you to catch up on iTunes or on our website uh, to the sermons before, so you can really try to see how all the Bible fits together, how all that points us to Christ, making sense of all of God's story. Uh, we think as we grow in our faith, the most important thing we can possibly be doing to do that is to be reading our Bibles. Any system, any formula, any book, none of it really matters if we're not actually engaging God's Word, reading God's Word, seeing what it is that God has to say. I'm also really excited to be going back to the Civic Center for Easter. Are you ready for that? You pumped for that? It's time. It's time to go back. Uh, you know, if, if basketball games can happen and those type of things, we'll take the same kind of protocols and the same kind of spacing out and all that's going to work. And uh, I'm just thrilled for it to happen. So we'll be there Easter Sunday, Good Friday here in this building at Sessions Road. Uh, we'll, so we can't beat Ruby Diamond this year because of the, uh, just the FSU policies uh, for that building, but we'll be here that night, uh, Good Friday. So I'm just excited for that what's all to come at that time. I think it's just a really important time for the church to be able to just really make sure that people understand and all that this all people have been through in the last year and a half, however long a year, however long it's been, and not just the virus. We're talking about politics, just every, like racial unrest. I mean, everything that has happened in our nation. What a time to proclaim that Jesus is alive. And I think it's an unbelievable time to be a Christian, an unbelievable opportunity uh, for us to continue to make the gospel known in a world of so much uncertainty, of so many false gods. What an opportunity we have. We want to be faithful with it every day of our lives, every Sunday as we gather, and especially a time like Easter weekend where people are open to having conversations about faith. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, we are grateful that you've given it to us. We ask that we found faithful in reading it, in preaching it, in hearing, understanding, uh, that we truly will see it as the words of our God when we read our Bibles. So that's exactly what it is. We ask you to be with all the churches in our community as they gather today. We also ask last you to be with those in our congregation today who are hurting, who are stressed, who are anxious, uh, whatever is going on in life, that have doubts, that have uncertainties. Uh, I just ask that they will understand today that you love them, that in Christ you are for them, and that overall your purpose in our lives is to make us more like Jesus. We can glorify you, be in a relationship with you, and be part of your mission. So I ask that we'll lean on you today. As we read through the scriptures, we'll understand that there is no one like our God, that our foundation truly is firm because of what Christ has done for us. We ask to be with our nation, our state, our city, all the elected officials. Lord, we just depend on you completely. Please be with you as I speak this morning. Keep the enemy out of this place and out of our town. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So here is the setting of First and Second Kings, the context of it, the opening line. Now, King David was old and advanced in age old and advanced in age. He's going to Denny's at 4 p.m. for dinner. Like that's kind of where, that, that's where he's at. Uh, that, that, that's the place. He got to get in line first for the vaccine, okay? That, that, that's what we can say. He is old and he is advanced in age. Uh, we think that 1 Kings and 2 Kings was written by either Jeremiah or maybe a Levite who uh, was very informed about Deuteronomy, because a lot of what's talked about in Deuteronomy is expressed uh, in First and Second Kings. So as the era of First and Second Kings begins, God has delivered his people from Egypt. That's already happened in Exodus. He's given them the law, so we have so much time has passed now. Uh, he's given them his law. He's led them to the land he promised them. We saw that in Joshua. Like, all these things have actually happened. They've taken place. They've seen their need for an actual leader, and God has raised up David over Saul as their king. 
So now in First and Second Kings, it really gives us the story of God's people during the period of the monarchy. It really locks in. It's really appropriately named book of the Bible. Uh, this is First and Second Kings because it really locks in on the rule of the different kings at the time, picking right up after First and Second Samuel in actual chronological order. Uh, that is going to now end at the conclusion of David's reign, First and Second Samuel. Now into First Kings. Now, David, one of his sons, Adonijah, wanted to be king. Uh, That was not the person that God had picked to be next in the line. And we're told this, that he invited all his royal brothers, this is David's son, Adonijah, and all the men of Judah, the servants of the king, to go around and basically make the plea for him to be the next king, making a plea to David, who's old in age, about to take his last breath. But he did not, and this is important, he did not invite the prophet Nathan, Benaniah, the royal guard, or his brother Solomon. Now, Nathan was a very distinguished, very significant religious prophet figure at the time. He's the one that confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. And notice that as Adonijah is approaching David, wanting to be the king, he does not include God's man at all. He does not include anything of the faith. He's trying to disclude people that he thinks might be in his way of becoming the king. Well, Nathan and Bathsheba together, which is really an act of God's grace, the one Bathsheba, that David did what he did with, as we talked about last week, that now Nathan had called David out for his sin, and now years later, Nathan and Bathsheba are going to go in together to David and say, God wants Solomon to be the king. Your son Solomon is to be the next king. So David had kind of forgotten the promise for a moment, and now locked in, now he's reminded. And first and second kings, or excuse me, first kings of the beginning, first 11 chapters, really locks in on King Solomon. On his coming to power, his reign, we see a united kingdom. Uh, Things are going very well. We see as the time approached for David to die, he ordered his son Solomon, who's now going to be king. He says, as for me, I'm going the way of all the earth. That's the way of saying I'm getting ready to pass away. Be strong and be a man and keep your obligation to the Lord your God and walk in his ways. This is straight from Deuteronomy. And to keep his statutes, commands, ordinances and decrees. This is written in the law of Moses so you will have success in everything you do and wherever you turn. Why? Because you're going to lead God's way. You're going to do things the way God has designed them to be and so that the Lord will fulfill his promise that he made to me. This is David talking. If your sons take care to walk faithfully before me with all their heart and all their soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. We spent last time talking about the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises that his people following him. There will always be a descendant on the throne of Israel. This will ultimately lead us to the king of kings, the one true king, Jesus Christ. So we see some good news. Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingship was firmly established. Like God's promise is in effect. They don't have to wonder. They're not guessing will it ever come true. Like it's working. It's happening. And then we see this happen. Keep an eye on Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Behurim, who was with you. He uttered malicious curses against me the day I went to Manham, but he came down to me at the Jordan River, and I swore to him by the Lord, I will never kill you with the sword. So don't let him go unpunished, for you're a wise man. You know how to deal with him to bring his gray head down to Sheol with blood. So here we go from saying, do things God's way, here we go, you're going to be God's man, to David saying, oh, hey, by the way, Solomon, before I go, I need you and your king to kind of clean up my mess. Like I didn't deal with things as God told me to all the time, David, far from perfect, 
Now, David was a man after God's own heart and the fact that he believed God, that he knew the Lord, that he trusted in God's ways, but he didn't always live that out or act it. And now he wants Solomon to go and basically do his dirty work with things that he had failed to do. So we see kind of both sides of Solomon come into play. One is that he loved the Lord. You see times where Solomon's walking with God, where he's honoring the Lord. But also we see Solomon make some just colossal mistakes, some colossal acts of idolatry that's going to very much hinder the way things are. Listen to this. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, in the Old Testament, if you've been following along the last little while, when Egypt is mentioned, it's usually not good. Like, it's usually not really a good thing. So he's going to, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Now, keep in mind how regularly throughout the Old Testament, so far as we've been going through this, that God is telling his people not to marry foreign wives. And as we've made clear, that has nothing to do with ethnicity or skin color, but it has everything to do with religion. Not to marry people who worship false gods. So Solomon brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace the Lord's temple, and the walls surrounding Jerusalem. So here's this guy that David gave these strong commands to, to be all about the Lord's ordinances and the Lord's statues, to walk with God, believe God, do things God's way, and he knows that, he understands that, like he has the head knowledge, and then he makes a marriage alliance with the king of Egypt. Now we're told over and over again that Solomon was very wise, that he asked for wisdom, that he was the wisest man in all the land, but that doesn't mean you're still not a flawed and sinful human being. You can have all the wisdom in the world, all the intelligence in the world. You can be top of the line in your field, extremely educated, extremely knowledgeable, savvy, but still a flawed and sinful human being. And we see out of the gate that Solomon was not the king that we need. Yeah, we have a king, but he's not the ultimate king we need. Then we see a story that's known as kind of the epitome of wisdom in the Bible, where two women who were prostitutes, they come to Solomon with a baby. And the debate is over whose baby actually, like, who is actually the mom of this baby? One lady going, this is my child. No, this is my child. They're going back and forth. And Solomon has this great idea of wisdom in the moment to help them, to help him understand exactly who really is the true mother. So he says, okay, here we go. Um, Cut the baby in half, and each of you can have like half the baby. And who was the person that freaked out and said, no way, don't do that? The true mother. Because the mother would never in a million years, hopefully no one would want that to happen, but the mother especially would not ever allow that to happen to her child. And this is presented to us as like the epitome of wisdom in the Bible, Solomon coming up with that scenario to get the actual truth. But there's more to the story that's easy to miss sometimes. Yes, he comes up with a brilliant solution, but also we see the state of Israel at that time and what was starting to happen morally with God's people. I mean, here are two prostitutes active in this, and, they have, and here they are in the middle of the palace. Here they are right in the middle of all that is happening, right among the people of God. So we just see sin normalized in Solomon's kingdom, a sinful society. What really is wisdom? Is it being smart or savvy, knowing more things? No, it's living in light of what God has said. But that's actual wisdom. 
living in light of what God has said. A worldly sense of wisdom apart from God, God calls it foolishness. He says, only wisdom to the world. It's foolishness to me. It's foolishness to everyone else. Now, Solomon had some great moments. His biggest accomplishment was definitely, without question, building the temple. David wanted to build a temple, and Solomon, he said, no, I'm not going to build it for you right now, but you're gonna, we're going to wait for your offspring. And we see that Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month. The, actually, now God's temple among his people was about to happen that many years later. See, the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. The temple is so significant to the people of God in the Old Testament, a massive part of the Old Testament story. See, the ancient Israelite temple was a gigantic symbol, uh, really, that was visualizing for everyone else God's desire to live among his people, to be with his creatures, his people that he created and set apart for himself. If you were to ask any like, ancient Israelite to tell you where's the most important place on earth, you're like, you would get a clear, consistent answer. The temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built. Like it's really kind of the place where heaven and earth meet, where the creator God has chosen to take up residence among his people. And we see figurative examples of that beforehand that kind of were pointing us here, uh, how the temple points us to what God's done in the past. In the Garden of Eden, God just straight up dwells with his people. There's no sin, there's no barrier, all is perfect. God dwells with his people. Then we see after the Exodus, as they're in the wilderness, God dwells with his people in the tabernacle. And then we get to the New Testament and we see that the Son of Man, that he dwelt among us. And the language there, in the original language, is that he tabernacled among us. God loves to be with his people. And as we get to Jesus, we see that someone greater than Solomon is actually here. And here's Solomon's prayer. May the peoples of the earth know that the Lord, that the Lord is God, that there is no other be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, our God, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commands as it is today. As for you, and here's what God told him, if you walk before me as your father David, this is after this, the consecration of the temple, after Solomon prays, with a heart of integrity and in what is right, do everything I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promise your father David. You'll never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. If you, your sons, turn away from following me and do not keep my commands, my statutes that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods, this is all about worship. Like God is militantly stubborn that he will not allow his people to worship anything or anyone else but himself. He goes, I'll cut off Israel from the land I gave them. Like I'm warning you, I'm not going to share my glory. I'm not going to share my worship and I will reject the temple. Like to me, it's just a building then if you're not going to worship me that I've sanctified for my name. Israel will become an object of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples. Though this temple is now exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will scoff. They will say, why did the Lord do this to this land and this temple? Then they will say, easy answer, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors 400 plus years before out of the land of Egypt. They held on to other gods and bowed and worshiped to them and served them. Because of this, the Lord brought all this ruin on them. And what does Solomon do? Even though God spoke to him directly, he turned away from the true God to worship other gods. That's what he does. 
and I want to judge him quick and fast in my flesh, but how often do I do the same exact thing? Where I know the story. I know what God has done for me. I know the love the Lord has for me. I know there's no other God. I'm not a polytheist. I'm a monotheist. I believe there's one God. But still something in me wants to turn away and worship other gods. And we see that King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women from the nations at which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you. Why? Not because of their country, not because of their skin color, because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. Here's God not just commanding us, but looking out for us. I'm protecting my people from turning away to foreign gods. I'm putting these rules in place, not as simply restrictions, but as an act of grace to keep you from being led away. He says, to these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. Even though God said this, this is basically love is love, doesn't matter who you love, as long as you love before it was cool. He's going to turn away from God and go to worship foreign gods. When Solomon was old, his wives turned, what do you know, his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted, we're told, to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Now, David sinned too, but notice David still gets that kind of shout out. Why? Because David repented when he sinned. He turned back to the Lord. He confessed his sin. He received God's grace. Solomon is following his flesh. He's believing there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there more is to be gained by obeying him. Right? All these women. We see that Solomon accumulated many things. Wealth. Richest man in the world. People would come to him for advice. He was considered the wisest man in the world. And here is the God who has appeared to him twice already. Two different times between chapter 1 and 11 to talk to him. To, to, to call him to godliness. To call him to the covenant. And still, he wants to do what's right in his own eyes. Just like the time when there was no king in the book of Judges. It's important to know this. It's, it's really kind of common to hear people say that maybe, maybe you've heard this before, or maybe someone's told you this kind of mocking your faith, that religion just kind of brainwash, is for like brainwashing you. you know, like, the, like the Bible brainwashes you, or, or Christianity is just a bunch of brainwashing, or maybe some kind of like, you know, discipling children, helping children learn Bible verses, understand God. It's like, oh, you're brainwashing. That's kind of a common, maybe not that exact wording, but that kind of like indoctrination, like you hear those kind of things. Uh, but the Bible is not designed to brainwash you. The Bible is there to help you from getting brainwashed from the wisdom of this world. The scriptures are there by God's grace that he has given us to keep us from getting brainwashed. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, Romans 12 tells us, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The words of God free us from the words of man. The wisdom of God frees us from the wisdom of man. And it's important to know that wisdom is important, but it's not the same as godliness. And the deeper you get into these books, the first and second kings, you see a longing. The things just aren't right. 
There's like glimmers that things are okay. Wow, temple, this is great. But there's, there, there's just still some kind of longing. of They're not exactly as they're supposed to be. And it's important to know that just because Solomon has great gifts and great abilities and great privilege, it doesn't excuse his great sins. God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to godliness and how we respond to his grace. There's things that are like warning signs. I mean, his palace he built for himself is bigger than the temple. And it took him twice as long. There's some warnings there in that going, okay, you spent twice as long on your palace with your foreign wives than he did on God's temple. God's not sitting there with like a, like a he's not like comparison. He's not like the, the, the family that's like, you spent Thanksgiving with them. You know, like he's not like keeping track of how much time is spent here. But there's some warnings. It's like, eh, something's off here. And we see God told them that they went this way, that they would no longer have the blessings of the land and the promise in their generation. And what happens? The kingdom as a result is divided. From a united kingdom, things going well, to now divided. Rehoboam would take the south and Jeroboam the north. The south called Judah, the north called Israel. And here's what we see. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. I like how they make sure he mentioned that. God talked to him twice and still no. He had commanded him about this, that he would not follow other gods. But Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. And the Lord said to Solomon, as you have done this and did not keep my covenant, my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of your son's hands. So Solomon would kind of disappear from the story and would die. And then his sons would go forward. Listen to Israel, the northern kingdom, what they did after they divided and went and did their own thing. Here's what we're told. Then he made two golden calves, which is like the worst thing you possibly can do in the Bible. <laughs> like, like nothing brought about God's anger more in the scriptures in the Exodus and them building idols and worshiping them. And he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. Israel, here are your gods who brought you from the land of Egypt. I mean, face palm emoji, all of it. Like, here are your gods that we just built for ourselves. Like, like, like this is the absurdity of idolatry. He set one up in Bethel and put the other in Dan. This led to sin. The people walked in procession, one of the calves, all the way to Dan. Jeroboam also made shrines. This is the other kingdom. On the high places and made priests in the ranks of the people who were not Levites. Sorry, this is still the same kingdom, my bad. Jeroboam made a festival in the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like the festival in Judah. So they're creating their own religion here. He offered sacrifice on the altar. He made this offering in Bethel to sacrifice to the calves he had made. He also stationed the priests in Bethel for the high places he had made. He offered sacrifices on the altar he had set up in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month. He chose this month on his own. He made a festival for the Israelites, offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. He's creating his own religion. That, that's what happens when you disobey God but still want to claim some sort of faith. He's making his own religion. Look what the southern kingdom's doing. Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They had issues too. They provoked him to jealous anger more than all that their ancestors had done with the sins they committed. They also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, as in the acts of worship that God had not prescribed for them. 
and as sure, poles on every high hill and under every green tree. There was even male cult prostitutes in the land. They imitated all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. They're being like everyone else. No distinction. Not living as the people of God. Then we see a list of kings, and it's like, this king was terrible, this king was terrible, this king was terrible. Like, it was just long, exhaustive list, and then what made them so bad was they disobeyed the Lord. So this first and second kings begins to bring us a dilemma. If the God of Moses did exist, and he really did bring his people out of Egypt, and then why, as the kingdom was divided and wrecked, why, then the temple destroyed, all these things happened. And the monarch now seemed to come to an end. Like, where's God? So there's no more temple. It's been destroyed. It seems like there's no more monarch. Divided kingdom. Idol worship. The north is not in Jerusalem. Like, like what's going on here? Really, First and Second Kings was written to help the exiles as they were about to be, as we'll see, taken to Babylon come to terms with everything that had fallen apart. Like, where's the God that promised Abraham and promised David? Like, has he given up on us? And kings really is God's answer. And then we see this mystery guy kind of appear out of nowhere named Elijah in 1 Kings 17. He just kind of appears out of nowhere. He's a prophet. And the role of the prophet is always to call Israel back to what God had already told them. Like, we take the Lord's Supper here. It's kind of almost like a prophetic act. It's, it's us, almost like in a, in a, back, in, in like a, a reverse kind of way, where we're remembering together what God has done. The prophets were calling people back to worshiping God. And also giving them really a present word from the Lord, as the entire Bible had not been written yet. But the underlying problem is they're not listening to the word of God, even though they're hearing it. So... And the reality is that religious decline always leads to other areas of decline in society. Always. You look at nations of the world that have gone by the wayside, that are in oppression now, that are under evil rule now. At some point down the line, there was a religious, sometimes forced, religious decline. And it impacts the entire society. That's what's happening here. There's either going to be repentance of the people or the judgment of God. So it was time to take drastic measures and show the people what this really is about, who God is compared to their false gods. And here's what Elijah told them. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So this is about to be like the ultimate, like original, my dad can beat up your dad. Like in the, like in, in the context of like the one true God is greater than any of these false gods that you've made. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? Like if the Lord is God, okay, follow him. But if Baal, like if this false god is God, follow that god. The people didn't answer a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I'm the only one remaining prophet of the Lord. Little did he know that God had 10,000 prophets hidden at this time. But Baal's prophet are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Hey, then you guys, Baal worshippers, 
you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, let's just go with the fact that he is God. All the, all the people answered, that's fine. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you were so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Says, you can get the ball first. Y'all just take the ball. Then call the name of the Lord your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's, he's a god. Like, he can't hear you. Maybe he's, I love this, maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Maybe he's on, a, maybe he's on lunch break. Maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping. Then he will wake up. What do the scriptures tell us? That our God never slumbers nor sleeps, the psalm says. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice where there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob. Remember in Joshua, 12 stones are presented at the Jordan River to remind them of God's faithfulness and giving the land of the promise to his people. To whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, a defined personal God who we know by name, Today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. It's like, you think? The Lord, he is God. Now the only solution can be that if he is God, then Baal is not. That if he is God, then materialism is not. That if he is God, then politics is not. That if he is God, then identity is not. If he is God, then family is not. If he is God, then America is is not. If he is God, then knowledge is not. Success is not. Do not, he says, Elijah ordered him, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to Wadi Keshon and slaughtered them there. Now these miracles serve as confirmation. You see in the New Testament when the disciples were allowed to do miracles, and Jesus himself, as he first started his ministry, were to validate the message. So the people will know that you are God. And you might go, man, that'd be nice. I, I would love to be able to say, God, where are you during this time in my life? And he'd just show up like that and tell me. And one thing I don't do, I don't give like just cliche preacher answers because that's not going to get us very far. Like I want to give us biblical answers because that's God's word. Here's the luxury we have as people who have the Bible completed. And this is so important. 
It's not a cop-out answer. It's the honest truth. Do you know what the bail moment is of the fire coming down for us now as believers? It's an empty tomb. It's the resurrection that has proven once and for all that he is God. So now when I read the words of the scriptures, rather than having this kind of audible moment or fire coming down, that would probably be nice for you, I'm sure, during what's happening. Like, God, why is this happening? Please tell me. We don't know all the answers to all those things. We do know that Jesus is alive and that God has kept all of his promises and that every other false god or religious leader, whoever has gone before, their tomb is occupied. But the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty so that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the reason he died was a death that we deserve for our sins. And he has now made us right with God for all those who will trust in him and believe. So Elijah afterwards, you think he'd kind of walk around and like have his chest sticking out and be all pumped about the events, but he actually is discouraged and flees because nothing changes. He actually goes and sits under a tree. It's like the ultimate pouting position done all these things, seen all these things happen, and people don't, people haven't changed. And I can relate to that as a pastor, not that I'm the example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'm a work in progress just like you are, but it's like you teach these things over and over again, over and over again, and it's like they, they hear it, and they, but like, are they actually going to change? You know, all it takes is a little politics and a little unrest and a virus, and I mean, you wonder what people's religion is now. You know, if God is God, serve God. If identity is God, serve that. If Trump is God, serve him. If Biden's God, serve him. If health is God, serve health. I, I, it really, I, I can relate to that. And again, not that I'm the example of, of the opposite of that, but it's just kind of going, am I doing a good job? And I've had those, those moments, uh, kind of some depression moments over the last year. It's like, am I, am I doing a good job? Like, am I, am, I, am I a good pastor? Like, have people listened for the past 14 years? Like, you, you wrestle with those kind of things, you know? You have those moments, too, where you're like, am I a good parent? Am I a good friend? Like, are they getting it? Like, where did I go wrong? I mean, like, so Elijah's just kind of like, man. But then God reminds him, because that's what God does. God kind of slaps us around through reminders, Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied. Here's what he replied. I, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they're looking for me to take my life. But he did not know that God already had a plan, that Obadiah had like 10,000 prophets waiting of God. He takes him back to Mount Horeb where God had made great promises to his people to remind him of what God had done and that God was still at work. The books of First and Second Kings were written in part in order to demonstrate that the exile of God's people was simply a judgment on God's people because of their persistent idolatry. And much of those books of Kings reflects the language and theology of the book of Deuteronomy, emphasizing that God's judgment has come for those who have not kept his law. And then as Elijah goes out, he's actually taken out on a kind of like a chariot of fire. We see it handed off the baton to Elijah. And we see that this kind of succession narrative in 2 Kings, Elijah, Elisha, 
And it really kind of presents to us of Elijah kind of being like a John the Baptist figure and Elisha kind of being like a Jesus figure where John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to come. And here comes Elisha who's expected to kill and bring judgment and instead he brings saving and rescuing. And brings a message not of condemnation but of hope. We even see the evil king Ahab who is the worst of all the kings repent. We see this, they lived according to the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites and according to what the kings of Israel did. So the nation's still in sin, living like people who don't know God. They did evil things, angering the Lord. They served the idols, although the Lord had told them, you must not do this. So the Lord warned Israel and Judah through every prophet and every seer, saying, turn away, your evil, turn from your evil ways, keep my commands and statutes according to the whole law. I commanded your ancestors and sent to you through my servants, the prophets. They would not listen. They're just like us. Like, God, no thank you. I want my way. Instead, they became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. They rejected his statues and his covenant he had made with their ancestors and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols, became worthless themselves, and following the surrounding nations, the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. They abandoned all the commands of the Lord their God. They made cast images for themselves two calves in the Asherah pole. They bowed and worshipped all the stars in the sky and served Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. I mean, look at what they're doing. They devoted themselves to do what was evil in the Lord's sight, and it angered him. And here's the results. Just what God told them would happen. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah remained. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God, but lived according to the customs Israel had practiced. So the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, punished them, and handed them over to plunders until he had banished him from his presence. I just wonder what we see after that. There's a lot of scripture here. I'd love for you on your own to read, uh, starting in 2 Kings 18, and, and then read through there, and, and read some of chapter 24 if you're taking notes. We see what happens is that they deported the rest of the people. These are the Assyrians and the Babylonians. There's someone named King Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to get into him later down the road in this, this time in this series. We see that he burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down the great houses. We see he deported the rest of the people who remained in the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon and the rest of the population. Like, here's what's happening. They broke into pieces the bronze pillars of the Lord's temple, the, the water carts, the bronze basins. They, they took everything. Then all of a sudden, we're like, okay, God's done. He's, he's over these people. Is he not their God anymore? Is he not their people? They've been taken. They've been taken out of the land, land destroyed, taken into exile. Like, okay, I've warned you. I've given you so much grace. I've warned you over and over and over. But now, if this is going to be the ultimate wake-up call, you're going to go. And then it's like, man, this is over. Just kind of close our Bibles. The people have failed. We see this little glimmer of hope once they're in exile. Listen to what happens. On the 27th day of the 12th month of the 37th year. So we haven't really heard much about what's going on except they're in exile. Like, that's what they're doing. Of Judas, King Jehoiachin, and the evil Merodach became king of Babylon. He pardoned the king. Listen to that. He pardoned the king. The actual 
king of Judah, and he released him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and set his throne over the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. As for his allowance, regular allowance was given to him by the king, a portion for each day for the rest of his life. Here is someone from the promise that still gets mentioned. And even though they're in Babylon, there's this little glimmer of hope of going, oh, guess what? The king's still alive and he's being treated well. And don't you forget 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one of David's descendants is always going to be on the throne. God has warned his people that the wages of sin is death, that sin bans us from God's promise. At the same time, the God who warns and the God who judges is the one that doesn't just give New Testament Christians a glimmer of hope, but a resounding, huge billboard flashing lights saying, Jesus in my place. Where God calls his people to live a certain way, we have failed. God has also offered the solution for a people. And that solution comes from not the great king of this world, but a descendant of those kings who occupies the throne right now, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we see this little tiny glimmer of hope from the king. We see a little glimmer that God's still working, the gospel's still in play, and the people are going to be brought to himself. They don't deserve it, who have sinned, because God loves them, really does have a plan for them, and has not forgotten about them. So we don't need a glimmer. So the nice thing about us is we don't have a glimmer of hope we have the whole story. And that's why as now permanent exiles, we can claim what Paul wrote, that our citizenship is in heaven, and that we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. So in doom and gloom, doom and gloom, we see God working on behalf of his people the promise he has made. Our country right now, our world, we see lots of doom and gloom see lots of uncertainty, divisions on and on and on and on and on, but we also see the fact that God has not forgotten about his people. His people, which is not Americans, the church. And we eagerly wait for Christ to return and believe every promise that he has made will come true in him. Praise God that he has a standard and we couldn't meet it, so he met it for us in Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a death we deserved, rose from the grave, and is coming again. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'd like for you to take your Lord's Supper packet, if you have one. If not, now's a good time to get it. We don't pass them anymore, as just due to the protocols and precautions. And as you hold that in your hand, I just want us to be reminded of just God's faithfulness. I mean, when God, approach, when God speaks to Solomon, speaks to his people, what does he tell them? I'm the God who's done this for you. But even more than that, I am God, period. We don't worship God because of what he's done for us. First and foremost, we worship God for who he is. And we also worship him for what he's done for us in Christ. Jesus took at the table with his disciples. 
He took bread and he took wine. He told him to take those things in remembrance of him, that he would die, he would shed his blood, that his body would be given, his blood would be shed, and he wanted him to remember that until he returned. This is the greater, this is the greater exodus out of Egypt, an exodus from sin, an exodus from sin's penalty. So just for a moment, if you would just take a second, this kind of loud and distracted world, just take a moment and pray where you're seated, just, where you're seated, just, just silently. Thank God for who he is. Thank God for what he's done. Ask him to forgive our short memories where we quickly turn to the gods of this world. We want to be more like the world than we do like him. Thank him for his grace, for his love, all understood in Jesus Christ. Confess any sin you might have in your life. We're told the Lord's Supper is an activity for the church, the people of God. Our church service is for all people. The Lord's Supper is the opportunity for those who are the family of God through their local church to observe the Lord's Supper together and remember till he comes. So for all those in Christ, if you'll please Take the wafer. Remember the body that was given for you, the body of Christ, and go ahead and take and eat it. We're told without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus died a death that we deserve. He is our great substitute. He is the Passover lamb. He is the ultimate temple, God with us. We're no longer separated from God. We're united in Christ. We're one with Christ. Such great news. Take the juice and remember Christ's blood until he comes. As the people whose citizenship is in heaven, as we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, let's stand together and sing some good news.